Yeah. If you want to hear more stories, I have more, and they even they even get more more interesting, more scary. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I read somewhere that Muhammad Ali had you kidnapped. What? I started dealing, dealing doing my show basically, and and he said we'll give you ten thousand dollars a week to come to the Middle East and play cards for oil money. I said uh, no thanks, and he was irate with me. He said, "What? You're turning down ten thousand dollars a week?" I have a, a very rare visual condition. It was first documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet. It's called Charles Bonnet syndrome, and it's a condition where a person who has lost their sight and should see black or nothing for some unexplainable reason still sees colors, patterns, shapes, images, and I'm, as far as anyone knows, the most extreme case on the planet. And then there are other people that are lazy. I think that's one of the worst disabilities of all is laziness or procrastination. Uh, my wife and I, we are, we are so we get so irritated when when somebody wants to do tomorrow what they can do right now. You know, we are not procrastinators, and to me, I'd rather give me take my vision, cut out, cut the eyes out of my head, rather than procrastination any day of the week. Uh, I got to the point, you know, in the four, you know, many years later, where I could do 500 push-ups in 12 minutes nine seconds. I topped out at 340 on the bench press. I could do the splits across two chairs, and I could curl more than my body weight. Very few weight lifters can curl their weight. They can military their weight, but it was very few that can curl their own body weight more than their weight. So in 19, in 2015, I get a letter from Ripley's. They said. Oh, you're in the 2015 issue of Ripley's, believe it or not, book of eye-popping oddities. And you will receive a certification that you are a certified oddity. You are a certified oddball. So I say, you might be an oddball, Xavier, but I'm certified. Certified, certified, certified. What's up, folks? Xavier Katani here. Here is our interview with Mr. Richard Turner. Richard has a phenomenal story. He is a card mechanic, and the major caveat is that he lost his sight at the very young age of nine. So it makes his story especially interesting. We get into a lot of really amazing stuff, and I, I saw his documentary, Delt, and I, I was just mo really moved by Richard's story. Richard won the Golden Lion Award in Magic from Siegfried and Roy in 1982. He was the 2014 and 2017 recipient of the Close-Up Magician of the Year Award. It's an amazing story. You guys are gonna love this episode. Here is Mr. Richard Turner. Thank you guys so much for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest for today is Mr. Richard Turner. Richard, thank you so much for making the time to do this. Welcome to HXP. I am honored to be with you today. So, Richard, you're regarded as one of, one of the best card mechanics in the world. Uh, but to many people, they might not know what that is. Can you tell us what a card mechanic is, please? Of course. And the term card mechanic goes back like 50 years before the invention of the automobile. If you go back to the hustlers during the 19th century, they were referred to as mechanics or sharpers. A mechanic is somebody who can fix the outcome of a card game. 
which is different than the sleights used uh, by magicians to perform card magic, those techniques are, I'll just say they're a lot easier to develop and there's thousands of very good card magicians, but the techniques for the card table are just many, many, many times more difficult to develop. And there's just a handful of really good world-class card mechanics, partly because of the amount of hours it takes and just for the history, you know, aboard the old river boats and the gamblers back then, the gamblers, they would spend like half their life developing one or two moves and that's what they would become known for. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just happened to spend my life learning a whole lot of the moves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a caveat to this I mean, there's a big turn in this story for lack of a better word. When you were nine, you suffered a retina disease that took your vision. Can you, t can you tell us about that? Well, I was, uh, my sister and I, Lori, we both had scarlet fever, and we're not sure if this is what caused it, but uh, we both got scarlet fever, and our actual our elementary school, we were in quarantine because of that, and, uh, and then shortly thereafter, I was sitting in my classroom, fourth grade, 1963, and the teacher's writing stuff on the board, and first it was clear, and then a moment later, it was all fuzzy. I looked down at my book my book the words all of a sudden went fuzzy mm -hmm. so it was a degeneration and uh, we're not exactly sure the cause other than my sister and i both got scarlet fever and the same thing happened to both of us and uh and then it was a degeneration that started with the retina which is the uh, i'm sorry it started with the macula which is the center part of the retina and that was the first to go so for oh for a number of quite a number of years of my life i had only peripheral vision I, it would be like having a hat in front of your face. And then the peripheral vision was measured at 20 over 400, which is twice as low as what's considered legally blind. So even the vision that I had off the, out of the size of the eyes was very much distorted. 2020 is normal vision. 2050 is what you have to have to drive. And 20 over 400 is like eight times as low as what you're allowed to ha You must have to drive a car. So I've not... I've never driven a car, except when a few times when someone wasn't looking. So it's it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, I, I saw the documentary that you guys did, and I was hooked by it. How did you overcome this adversity? I mean, you're you're not ever really able to look at the cards. So, I mean, how are you able to mechanic the cards without seeing what the card is? Ah. That's a really good question. And there's a number of questions in there. Um, first, um, I, I was able to see the cards up until about 25 years ago. I could put the cards within two inches of the corner of my eye, one eye or the other, and I could make them out. So I was able to play cards up until like 1990, around 1990, 1992. And, um, but since everything is done by touch and my sense of touch uh, was heightened because of the lack of sight. I, you know, kind of the neural networks kind of relocated, reorganized themselves around my visual cortex, my sense of touch. So uh, how I identify cards, well, let me just put it another way. What I can do with the cards, it'd be better to explain it along those lines. Sure. You, you can take a deck of cards and shuffle them up and say, I want to play seven cards dead. I want five players in the game. I want to sit at the third hand, and I want you to deal me 
a straight. And I will let you shuffle the cards. I'll deal them out. And as I deal, I'll let you take those cards out of my hand as I'm dealing anytime you want and shuffle them up some more and remove cards from the deck and just hand me a stack of cards each time I go around the table. And the hand that you selected and the game you selected with the number of players you selected will have the winning hand. So even if you could, if you had 20-20 vision or if you had x-ray vision or if you had a deck that was face up where you could see every card coming off the deck or if you had a deck that had giant embossed k's on the k and j's on the j mm-hmm. how could that even be conceivable hmm. you know i i find you know there's there's something so amazing about overcoming that level of adversity that you faced was there ever a time where you felt like giving up well i started off as uh, when I was very young, five years old, I got attention for my artistic talent. I could paint and draw you know, beyond my years. And uh, I was always the best artist all the way through school, first, second, third, fourth grade. And then, of course, the vision started going south. And I was known as the best artist. And so now, all of a sudden, I couldn't paint and draw anymore. So what was my identity at that time was kind of stripped from me. And that caused me to you know, rebel and and like everybody during I, during the 60s and early 70s, uh, not everybody, but in my case, you know, I got involved with the wrong people. And uh, the, the kids, the, the straight kids, you know, they would tease, hey, Magoo, and other things. Uh, how many fingers am I holding up and steal your money and things like that. And so that caused rebellion. But the ones that didn't do that and didn't judge were the druggies. And so I got involved for about three years in the drug scene, not a long time. Um, and uh, that was kind of my rebellion or my escape or my frustration or my way of trying to satis- uh, separate myself from my frustration and from my life. Like I said, my loss of my ability to paint and draw. And I even at one point was so mad at my vision going south that I took a magnifying glass. And I went out in the backyard and I stared at the sun through the magnifying glass, literally trying to burn the eyes out of my head. Oh, my. Yeah. And um, so anyway, but then uh, I was at a park uh, wanting to buy some drugs from these people and asked them, you know, if they had any angel dust. That's the time what we were looking for. And they said they had something better. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, a relationship with the creator of everything you see. And so I said, I said, mind if I sit down, tell me what you know. And from there, I, I, I changed from a life from going to the drugs to going to church. And uh, that turned my life around. From there, I, uh, within a month after that, I got involved with the martial arts. I met John Murphy, who was my karate instructor. Uh, I, t- I stopped on February 13th, 71, is when I met the people in the park. March, uh, the next month, March 5th, 71, is when I started karate. And uh, he uh, didn't care if you were blind, deaf, or dumb. He beat everyone equally. And uh, he's the one that kind of laid the foundation that whatever's in front of you, you can fight your way through it. So he's the one that I I credit for laying down that initial foundation for me to believe that, you know, the situation is not all is not perfect, is not great, but there, we can fight our way through it. 
And then that also, uh, I got from that, you know, came confidence. I got stronger because my abuse from the years that I was involved with drugs, and I was already a small person. Mm-hmm. That uh, that uh, helped build up my strength. And he said, uh, "You in the in, when I first started, the women, the kid, the, the old, the old ladies were beating me up, and the kids were beating me up." And so he said, you need to put some meat on your bone. And so he got me started lifting weights. I, uh, I got to the point, you know, in the four, you know, many years later where I could do 500 push-ups in 12 minutes, nine seconds. I topped out at 340 on the bench press. I could do the splits across two chairs. And I could curl more than my body weight. Very few weight lifters can curl their weight. They can military their weight, but it was very few that can curl their own body weight more than their weight. Anyway, so he, he turned me into a pretty darn strong guy. And if you look at some of the videos or uh, pictures, you'll see that I was pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was actually very strong. <laughs> and uh, so that, uh, that, that kind of laid the foundation um, to not look at it as a disability, but as a challenge to uh, overcome. Just like you have a better fighter in front of you, sure. you figure out how you can out uh, maneuver like a game of chess that particular fighter. Sure. And he would- yeah. And he would tell me, don't advertise your weaknesses. You know, don't let the person in front of you know that all you see is a big blurry blob. Stare them down like you can see them and bulldoze right through them. How old are you now, just for a sense of context here? I- I'm 64. And you moved into karate when you were how old? Uh, four months from me, I'm 17. I was 16 years old. I've been doing that for a long time, and I haven't stopped working out in 40 seven years and six months, I believe. And I could actually put it right down to the day if you wanted me to take, a, take the time. <laughs> I mean, how much of this is, you know, a, a mental, I mean, all of this is, is really just a, a manipulation of the, of the mind, right? You're, you're able to feel the, num- the cards. I mean, when you, when you run your fingers down the, the side of the deck of cards, you're, you're able to feel what the number is, right? No, not down the sides. All you're feeling is the edge of the cards. Sure. But I can feel the I can feel the difference in the thicknesses of cards down to a thousandth of an inch. But that's not quite what you were say, stating. But uh, that's uh, give you an idea of the touch that I have. And I was I have been a touch analyst for United States Playing Card Company, the biggest card maker in the country, for many years because my fingers are able to tell them and give them information that even their most most precise measuring devices are not. Hmm. That's kind of a cool thing. How would you compare your t- sense of touch now to, you know, pre-CBS? Has it changed? Well, let's just define CBS. Um, I have a, a very rare visual condition. It was first documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet, and it's called Charles Bonnet Syndrome. And it's a condition where a person who has lost their sight and should see black or nothing for some unexplainable reason still sees colors, patterns, shapes, images. And I'm, as far as anyone knows, the most extreme case on the planet. The average person with CBS will just have periodic splashes of color or a lights flashing or, you know, you know I see a kaleidoscope of beautiful, vivid colors, patterns shapes every subconscious image you can 
imagine. And the thing is, I don't see these images in the back of the brain like when you're dreaming or imagining. I can look at them. I see them in front of me. I see them in external space in the same way that you see what's in front of you. A visual, visually sighted person will see in front of them. I see in front of me. So I'm actually seeing things. They're obviously not really there. They're obviously projected from my mind. And I was just, I was just recently uh, interviewed for a Harvard study on the brain. And Dr. Ogus said that my, what had happened is my touch networks are looping back around to my neural network. And uh, like when uh, I go into a pool, I'm, my eyes will be completely closed. And as I go underwater, all the colors, I'll see the water go up over my head. And, as I, and, they, and they change hues to a darker hue. And then when I come back out, the, the, it goes down. I'll see the water passing by my face. And the hues change to a lighter uh, shade. And he said that is because the sense of touch uh, is so refi refined. That's not quite the word he used it mm -hmm. used um, that it, my sense of touch is once again looping back to my neural networks, creating a sense of vision. So um, that's kind of how I see things, and I love the way I see things. I live in a very beautiful world. Uh, the thing is, it doesn't matter if it's day or night. You can lock me in a vault with. No, no light source of any kind, and I still see these vivid royal blues and royal reds and yellows and greens and whatever shades they happen to be at the particular time. In the documentary, a deck of cards is by your side pretty much all the time. I mean, you wake up, grab a deck of cards. I mean, you would think there's a waterproof deck of cards that you take in the shower with you. I mean, how much is that repetitive sort of conditioning of your body with the motion of, of moving the cards and feeling the cards, how much does that connect into your ability to mechanic them? Or manipulate them, yes. Manipulate them. Yeah, and it was very, very crucial. As we've been sitting here the whole time I've been talking to you, I've been dealing seconds with a deck of cards. That's why I deal a second card out instead of the top card. I put it in the middle of the deck and I deal another one. That particular slide I've done over 100 million times. But... What I do is I take a move, like I'll just use the one I'm talking about right now, the second deal. I will break it down to its, to its smallest components and figure out what my fingers need to do. My thumb must apply the precise amount of pressure to push over exactly 22.6 thousandths of an inch. And with this particular deck, that's the caliper or the thickness of two cards. And then I will then... My right thumb will sweep across the deck in a 64th of a second, will engage that second card and deal it out. So I'll break it down piece by piece uh, in slow motion until every exacting element of the muscle memory is firmly embedded in my brain. And then I turn it into a subconscious habit. I have, I'm one of those persons that is constantly moving. When I was a kid, they called me Gilligan from Gilligan's Island, or they called me a perpetual motion machine because I never stopped moving. If I was, if I was uh, uh, in elementary school today, they would have probably stuffed me full of those drugs that they give some of these poor kids today that I think steals their initiative. In a lot of ways, I think there's just too much prescribing going on around there mm -hmm. in this world. Anyway, and I, they probably would have done that to me. And that was actually a, an asset. Um, so that's, that's what I will do with the moves. And so I am constantly honing and practicing the moves. And uh, I put in for 
I put in like an average of 10 to 20 hours a day, and I sustained that seven days a week for 26 years straight. And then when my son Ace of Spades was born, when I was 41, so I, would, I was responsible for having to feed him part of the time. And so I'm holding him and I couldn't practice because he would slobber all over my cards. And so I had to reduce some of the practicing. And at that, and then about three years, that was 95. And in 1998, I got my first talking computer. My sister, Lori, I call her my genius sister because she is, she is a genius. She's brilliant. And um, she was way ahead of me in the, the, uh, the adaptive technology, you know, talking computers and, and all the wonderful stuff that's out there now. But when it was first started, she was always, she always had the best and the latest. And she kept telling me, you got to get a talking computer. You got to get JAWS on your computer. And so I finally got one in 1998. And, and that, uh, because I had to have my hand, fingers on the keyboard, I couldn't practice. So uh, my office is set up. We have two computers in front of me here. I have my Mac and I have my PC. And all I do is just spin this chair around and I'm at my poker table. So, uh, and that way, so when I'm in between working on some kind of thing, checking emails or whatever, you know, if someone calls, I can instantly turn around and, and go back to practicing. You invented a, an acronym, DELT. Is something that you talk about uh, with regards to life and, and outlook in regards to everyone being held a certain, uh, being dealt a certain hand in life. What is the meaning of dealt? Well, I have a program that I do. I, I, lo I love speaking to companies now, and uh, I actually had to be drug into it. My wife, who is a, had a degree in speech communication in English literature, would uh, tell me, speaking, people want to hear what you have to say. And I'm sitting there going, I can perform, but man, speaking in front of people. Anyway, so uh, that was one of the things that I had to get over, and people keep wanting me to talk, and I'm going, why do they even want to hear me? Why are people wanting to listen to me? But they listen. And so now I'm, uh, I do a lot of speaking, and I have a program I call Winning with the Hand You've Been Dealt, D-E-A-L-T, and DELT is an acronym. D stands for dreams. Our dreams fuel the fire in our belly. E stands for excellence. What opens doors is becoming an expert achieving a state of excellence. A stands for analysis. You know, we have to analyze our obstacles, analyze our assets. L stands for loyalty. We must be loyal to our company, colleagues, customers, values such as honesty and integrity. And T stands for tenacity. And it's tenacity that breaks down the barriers that stand between us and our dream. And I kind of give my personal examples in each of those areas uh, relating, you know, the tenacity it took to fight 10 men in a row when I earned my first, my first degree black belt, I had to fight 10 men in a row. And that took an obsessive amount of tenacity, as did the, it, uh, it did to uh, learn and develop all the things that I've done with the cards. That word, obsession, is that something that you would describe yourself as? Well, I call myself the poster boy for obsessive, compulsive behavior and out of it. <laughs> uh, you know, I, my... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost over. It's a running joke in our family. My, you know, if I want, I see a shirt I like, I have to buy a dozen of them. If I find whatever, you know, she says, you, you are just, I'm obsessed about whatever's going on at the moment. Uh, and I'm enjoying whatever that happens to be. And I, if I'm, visit, I'm visiting with you, I'm talking with you, uh, whatever's going on at the moment, I'm 
it's at the top of my list, and I'm, I have to say I'm obsessed about it. And, and my whole life has been very, very wonderful and full of blessings, and I have been extremely blessed. So with a wonderful wife, we've been together 28 years, and my son, who just graduated from Trinity and has a new job with a very fine company, and uh, he's been my traveling partner for all my, you know, ever since he was born, as has been my wife. But anyway, there you have it. I'm just astounded by your ability to overcome all the, the challenges that, that you've been, you know, dealt by life. And I, I think we all go through those things, right? We all have something that is challenging us in our lives. And it's kind of up to us if we overcome them or not. I, I say everybody has challenges. Every single person out there has something that they're dealing with. Maybe they're, you know, they were assaulted as a kid. I, I was doing a program with one of the people that are working with our film. They're using it actually to help change the lives of, of people. And we did one recently. We're getting ready to do another one in New York where people watch the film. They all fill out this card of, Things that, they, that were they lonely or hurt, injured. And one, one of the guys at one of these events, he was uh, charged with a crime and sent to prison for years. And then the DNA proved that he was not the person that uh, did it. And so he had a lot of bitterness and anger. And um, another lady was talking about how she was sexually assaulted as a kid. And then so those are extreme, you know, very tragic cases. And then there are other people that are lazy. I think that's one of the worst disabilities of all is laziness or procrastination. Uh, my wife and I, we are, we are so, we get, get so irritated when, when somebody wants to do tomorrow what they can do right now. You know, we are not procrastinators. And to me, I'd rather give me, take my vision, cut, out, cut the eyes out of my head rather than procrastination any day of the week. In regards to dealing with those limitations, you had a mentor that was a big part of your life, Di Vernon. Can you tell oh, us about him, please? Oh, Di Vernon was my card mentor. He was born in 1894. Shows you how far we just, we just celebrated. He would have been 124 years old. Um, anyway, he was born in 1894. He lived to be over 98 years old. My wife, Kim, and I threw him his 98th birthday, two months before he passed away. But for over half a century, for like 60 years, he was recognized and considered as the best card man in the world. He was known as the man who fooled Houdini, and that took place in the early 1920s. And so he spent his entire life chasing gamblers around the world, to, and he would trick them or trade techniques, learning all their different moves. And he took a liking to me. Uh, back in 1975, and I and at that time I just turned 21, and I had already been working with cards since I was like seven years old. So I had developed some pretty difficult moves, except for I have to say they were wretched by my standards today. But he saw something in in me, saw someone that was crazy obsessed like he was, and and um, my first thing he would say is. I don't care how good, how fine that brief is. I know you're up to something because your actions are suspicious. And so that, that was the, one of the first things he said to me. And so I took that and I started analyzing it. And then I'd go back and I'd show him how I changed things. 
And then he started seeing that I was just putting in all these hours. Then he started challenging me. And he started describing to me different moves, techniques, controls. And the thing about what Vernon did is he didn't describe them to me in the way that he could do them or the way any other magician that we've ever heard of could do them because I couldn't see what he was showing me. He described them to me in a perfect manner, the way he wished they could be done. Some of these moves he worked on for 70 years and never accomplished. And so I would literally, you know, I would get really close to him, close to his hands, and out of the corner of my eye, I'd try to get a picture of what he was showing me. And of course, he also let me check out his hands, feel his hands. He would tell me, yeah, put your fingers on the side. You want this, you want to be totally natural in your execution. So he would describe these moves in a way that it would, if you could do it that way, it'd be much more deceptive, but it's so much harder because you, you don't have the same control over the deck that you would doing the, using the classic grips that many card mechanics and uh, magicians used over the century. And so I developed these things, and then I'd come back and I'd show them, and he'd go, that's perfect, that's it. And then he'd call all the other top card guys over, Larry, Larry, come watch this, Tony, watch this. And, uh, and then I, you know, and that just encouraged me to keep practicing more and more. And it wasn't for years later that I finally found out, he finally admitted to me that the things he made, he told me he just made up. He just wanted to see what I'd come up with. He just wanted to, he kept challenging me. And uh, so I, I, uh, he, I, I always say in my thing, you know, take possible out of impossible. Take possible out of impossible. Is what, what others thought were was not possibly was not possible to be done. I figured out ways to make it happen. Yeah, I think you're a walking example of of the possible inside of impossible. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, and I'm also a walking oddball. I'm a certified oddball. Let me tell you about that. <laughs> I, in 1984, I was on a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. We've all heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Sure. You know, you know, Ripley started a show back in the 1930s. Um, but anyway, I was on this TV show. I built a castle out of cards uh, that was from all my used cards for a, from a couple of decades worth. My wife said, we have a whole room with nothing but used cards. Can you do something with them? I can't throw them away. I said, what if they made cards illegal? So I thought, okay, I'll make a card house. No, I have too many. I'll make a card castle. So I glued together over 200,000 cards. It weighs 825 pounds. And it's on display at the second largest Ripley's in the country. My wife was so happy to get it out of the house. Anyway, so in, 19, in 2015, I get a letter from Ripley's. They said, oh, you're in the 2015 issue of Ripley's, believe it or not, book of eye-popping oddities. And you will receive a certification that you are a certified oddity. You are a certified oddball. So I say, you might be an oddball. Xavier, but I'm certified. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you, you, talk about, you talk about all these hours that you put into what you're doing with the manipulation of, of the cards. How many hours per day of practice are you actually putting in? Well, for years, like I said, I averaged 14 hours. 14 was my average day of practice. The only time I was not practicing is when I was training, working out or training. And even then... I had cards strategically placed, or if I was at a gym, I would have them, you know, right next to whatever I was working on, and I'd grab them, do a few, a few set, uh, reps, and then do a few deals, and then I'd, or try to hustle someone in a card game at the gym, which I did over years and years back. Um, 
so I averaged 14 hours a day. A low day, a low day would be 10 hours. There would be times when I'd get up at six and not go to bed till three, where I practice like 20, 21 hours in a day. That was not all that common, but there were days that I literally had the cards going 20 hours in a day. Um, now, because of the computer and having to answer emails and things like that, I put in only, I get three hours minimum to average, three to 10 hours a day is what I'm putting in. Now, maybe there's sometimes I get a 12 or 14 hour day when I'm on the road and away from my office. Um, but I still um, I put in at least three hours. I love sitting with my wife in the evening. We'll put up, bring up Netflix and, you know, go watch some some past series that we, we will be binge watching. And the only reason why I'm doing is it because it's uninterrupted practice time. Mm. I'm going to the movies for the same reason. What a blind guy going to a movie for? Well, because it's uninterrupted practice time. <laughs> I can visualize in my head, I can see my mind instantly creates pictures in front of me of what I'm hearing. So I'll get an idea of what's going on with a, with a film, but really what I'm doing is getting uh, uninterrupted time with the, uh, with the cards. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We are going to take a small break for a message from our sponsors. What's up, guys? We are interrupting this broadcast to bring you the deal of a lifetime. Helix Sleep, spoiler alert, has changed the game on sleeping. So let's talk a little bit about sleep. Sleep is a basic human need, like eating, drinking, and breathing. Like these other needs, sleeping is a vital part of the foundation for good health and well-being throughout your lifetime. This is where Helix Mattresses comes in. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes of your time to complete. They use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, you like a plush bed or a firm bed, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com slash hxp, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights absolutely risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. That's right. Get up to $125 off of Helix Sleep dot com slash hxp that's the link you want to go to helixsleep.com slash hxp a discipline is so important to this whole story i mean your story and excelling at anything so you know how much would you say is this just downright discipline well, I, the thing is, I don't have to discipline myself. I, I, it's the other way around. I can't stop disciplining myself. I have a strange kind of makeup and um, where, uh, example, I'm at church. And someone brings up that I was distracting people by practicing with my cards. And so uh, one time I thought, okay, oh, oh, I had to put them down during that hour. And my wife, Kim, says, you're shaking why are you shaking? Because for the first time, I didn't have cards in my hand. Mm. And so then I took the donation uh, envelopes and I put them in my hand and that worked. So, but then I, I solved the whole problem 
by, uh, as I said, I worked with the United States playing card company as their analyst. I had them give me some decks that have no printing on either side. They're just blank pieces of paper, but it's a, they're regular playing cards, but they have nothing on either side. So I, have, I call those my church cards. And my wife even keeps uh, some in, in her Bible case that she has her Bible in. Um, so I just pull them, pull them out, or I have my ones that I take that I have just for that purpose. And then I have other ones for when I'm in the ocean. I was out in Costa Rica with my brother Mike, and he was he's a he was a champion surfer, and he we were filming some scenes for the Delt movie, and um, you know we're me surfing, and I'm a lousy surfer. I'm uh, I have spectacular crashes. And then when we were done with all the whole thing and all the camera and everything, when we get out of there, and all of a sudden my brother sees my you know swimsuit, and he goes, "What's that in your back pocket?" And I, oh, I mean, oh, those are my waterproof cards. <laughs> so, so I mean, how many cards? How many card decks do you have? How many packs do you have back there? I have in the house. I well, I have tens of thousands in the house, but in the warehouse with my, my friend John Walton. We we're down to about maybe a hundred thousand decks, but Jeez. I have enough. Yeah, I have I, I made enough to last me for my life, and uh, and my friends who wanted really good quality cards. So, um, yeah, I do have a lot of decks. I have different uh, different uh, kinds. The best made card is the B ninety two. They started making them in eighteen ninety two. That's what the ninety two stands for. And the most recognized pack of cards is the Bicycle Rider back. They started making those in the 1880s, and that's probably the most recognized label in the world is a bicycle deck. But they're all made by one company, U.S. Playing Card Company. So this is interesting, I thought, when I read this. Um, you know, as your skills became more widely known, you, you received some offers from the criminal world, I mean, but you were wary about being 100% used. I mean, what is this about? Tell us more about that. Well, that is true. I've started in the early 80s. You know, I was on a TV show called That's Incredible with John Davidson, Fran Tarkerton, Fran Tarkerton, and uh, I think it's Kathy Lee Crosby. So she broke her leg playing football the night, be the day before I was to film in studio with her. But she did come up and say, hey, I'm in a full body cast, but I want to say hi. Anyway, um, and that show at that time, there was only three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. And so it was seen in the United States by like 60 million people. And then it went to 125 countries immediately. So it was seen all over the world. And um, from that came the mob. Uh, I had, the first offer uh, was a guy, I'll just call him RD. He saw what I could do. He wanted to play some cards. So we sat down to play. And I showed him how I could take his money. He could shuffle and cut. And he, then he goes, you're holding out on me. I'm not holding that. That means I, I'm palming cards out of the deck. Held my hands up in front of him, said, shuffle the cards again. How many players are at the game? How many players this time? Where do you want to sit? I dealt out four kings. He goes, after he saw that, so I'll give you $1,000 a day to come work for me. Now, this is 1981. $1,000 a day back then was good money. Hmm. And then he says, I said, no, thanks. And he goes, 2000 a day. And again, I politely refused. And then he said, how much will it cost to buy you? Those were the, his exact words. How much will it cost to buy you? And I instantly flashed to the scene in the Godfather movie where the guy wakes up and his, his horse's head is in bed with him. 
and he made him a deal he couldn't refuse. He was 100% used. And so what that means is when they're done with you, they dispatch you. They kill you. Hmm. And that, that was one guy. And that guy, he followed me for like six years. And in in, he would come and see me at the castle, and we'd have dinner probably once a month. And twice, uh, he and his partner, one of his partner's associates, which is one of the top five crime families in New York, and if I said the name, everybody would know. Um, I watched them get, being arrested, hauling off, hauled off to uh, jail on the news, and I thought that could have been me. And I won, one time he invited me to one of his games. He wanted me to deal in these private games. And so we're going to it, and um, he said, now I have to tell you, everybody here own mountains. And that's a euphemism. What it means is everybody there were very wealthy. And the driveway, the, the place we went to, the guy literally owned the mountain. The driveway was probably a mile, mile and a half long, came to a guardhouse that was a two-story guardhouse. And we passed through that, walked inside, went into these rooms, into this big, empty, not big, empty, big open room. And there was crap tables, blackjack tables. There were nude dancing girls. There was cocaine piled on a table. There was open bar. And everybody had, it was all cash. Minimum bet was $100. Everybody were walking around with fistfuls of $100 bills playing the different games. And he wanted me to be one of the dealers because he said, I can do by myself what it took four of his mechanics to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I decided um, to see what, uh, what, his, what, how, what the artifices the uh, mechanics were using. So I'm standing behind this table and the guy sitting there playing turns around and he goes, hey, Richard, it's me, Joey. You've been to my place in La Costa. And back then, La Costa is a beach town between San Diego and L.A. where the mobsters had their beach homes. And he had, he had propositioned me, you know, uh, about a, sometime within the year before to come work for him. He goes, yeah, you're not playing here now, are you? I said, no, 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 Joey. I'm just a guest like you are. He goes, the Richard's playing. Joey's leaving. And if I would have been in that game, I don't think he would have been quite so polite if I was the dealer behind that table. And anyway, so that was one offer. And, and then um, uh, another offer came from the Middle East. It started off with a phone call. And it was a very strongly accented voice, wanted to talk to me about doing business. And so I said, meet me aboard, you know, the place I was performing. And I get, it was a riverboat, and I get aboard the boat. And it was a party of five men. They were all of Middle Eastern descent. And uh, only, one, only one spoke English. The interpreter, there were four, there was the boss, who sat to my, who was to my right, and the interpreter was to my left. Uh, when I went up, they threw a stack of bills on my table and said, let's, you know, see what you can do with the cards. I started dealing, dealing doing my show, basically. And then he said, we'll give you $10,000 a week to come to the Middle East and play cards for oil money. I said, uh, no, thanks. And he was, I wait with me. He said, what? You're turning down $10,000 a week? I said, yep. And so then he started arguing with his boss, and it was either probably Farsi or Arabic. I, I couldn't tell the difference. Um, and then um, and then he turned back and he said, how about 20000 a week? And again, I said, no. He's arguing with his boss, and he's getting, his boss is getting mad at him, and he's getting mad at me. And he kept up in 30000 Finally, he said, how about a million dollars? Now, he didn't say if that was by the week, but again, I did say no. And they were so mad, they... They had their dinners were just served to them. They threw down their napkins, threw down their forks, threw another stack of bills on my table and got up and left. 
And because there were so many bills, I thought they were all like ones or fives. They were all $100 bills, a big old stack of $100 bills. I had a good night. Didn't have to put myself in a position where I'd be 100% used. Mm, yeah. If you want to hear more stories, I have more, and they even they even get more more interesting, more scary. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I I read somewhere that Muhammad Ali had you kidnapped. What? Well, Muhammad Ali was a wonderful, wonderful dear man. I love the guy. I was very fortunate to know him. I I was in a competition in Las Vegas hosted by Siegfried and Roy in 1982. And it was a showdown of all the top magicians and cardmen from around the world. And I was the winner of that. And then afterwards, uh, someone tells me, somebody would like to meet you, who was there and watched the thing. And I go in there, and it turns out it's Muhammad Ali. And I was always a big fan of his because, you know, at this point, I had been in the martial arts for like 11 years, 11, 12 years since 71. So I was a big fan of fighting, and I never missed one of his uh, boxing matches. you know, so I was a big fan of his, and he turned out to be a big fan of mine. And then we started hanging out together, went to shows together, and I can tell you some fun stories with Ali. But the kidnapping one was, uh, I was, this was another time, another year. I'm just in a casino, and four big African-American men come up to me and go, Richard Turner, you're coming with us. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think so. And they didn't give me much of a choice. They were, they, were, they were a good head taller than I was. And so there were two in front of me, two in back of me. They pushed me off the back end of the casino. They stuffed me into a limo. The limo zips away, whips around. Just you know, I can tell that they were short distances, zigging, zigzagging in and out of uh, the back sides of the casinos. They pull up behind the, another casino in the back. They open the door, two in front, pull me out, or you know, help me out. And then they, with the two behind me, just tell me where to go. And they go through the back end of the casino in through these hall passageways into a big suite where Ollie comes running up and throws his arms around me in a big bear hug and goes, Richard, how you doing? It's so good to see you again. So he had me snatched because he wanted to to visit with me and he heard uh, some new things that I was doing and he wanted me to demonstrate them for him. So that's how he did. had someone snatch me and bring me to him. Hmm. Interesting. You know, you, you talk about these different ways that, you know, people want to exploit your skills. Is there a defense against the, the skill that you have in casinos or? Well, the casinos, their security is very, very good. It's the safest places to gamble are in the casinos. I mean, they, uh, uh, they have cameras everywhere. They know everything you're doing, saying, when you've been there, when you were there last. And if they have any suspicion on who you are or that you might be able to do something, those cameras are going and the eye on the sky is watching. And, of course, that each time the players come up with a way to try to beat the casino, then the casino changes their procedure to cancel out that new method that the players are trying to use to profit against the casino. And of course, the casinos up until like before the 1980s, you, they were questionable. You know, they would have what they called bust out men, people that had skills uh, where they could deal seconds or in a peak or whatever it would take to uh, take the money, take the player down. But when the, when the mob kind of lost control and it was more, more owned by um, uh, corporations, you know, they, they, uh, 
cleaned up their act, I'll just put it like that. And now, instead of cheating the players, well, they'll just refuse service to somebody they don't like. If they think you're skilled, instead of bringing in someone like myself or, or a guy who's unbelievable, like a man like Steve Forty, who works within the casino industry, mm-hmm. um, instead of bringing someone like that in there to take them down, they'll just say, Xavier, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you can't play here anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye. Next door. And then you go next door, and they've already warned them next door. So next door says, oh, I'm sorry. You go across the street. So then you find out they won't give you any more cards. So it's an easier way. Instead of cheating you, they just tell you to get lost. Has there, has there been a time where you used your skills for your benefit? Yeah, it's like fighting. You know, that, that's probably, if I have to say, where I've slipped um, and fallen. You know, I never went back to drugs or anything like that. But I've always been, I've always been a card player. My, my sisters, when we first started playing, I'm on seven years old, seven, eight, nine, ten. We'd play for M&Ms, the red being the most valuable. We'd play for massage time. 30-second Annie, that 15 to, 15 to 30 seconds. And uh, then you'd have to pay up after every hand. Up to uh, going through high school, I was always the, playing cards with people. The first day of ninth grade. I, I won a quarter off the guy sitting next to me, playing a hand of cards, and I got my cards taken away and sent to the back of the class, first day of, first of ninth grade. And so I always, I, it, it's like a, 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 kara, a karateka, uh, karate uh, training. Uh, you train, you learn to kick, you learn to punch, but you go, will it really work? What if someone's punching me back? Can I, will these moves actually be effective? And so... And, and it's the same thing with the card move. So the, the, that's where I would slip, if you would, through the years. I would get in games, and I would have to try out the moves. I'm practicing this. I'm sitting there practicing this darn move for 10,000 hours. Now I want to put it to its actual purpose. So there, there were times, and sometimes I'd take the money, and the other times I'd just cheat the money right back to them. Other times uh, when people all openly challenged me. Now that's a different story. And I've had people, very, very wealthy people, uh, challenge me to see if I can beat them. One time a guy wanted to just cut high card for the pot. And we cut, kept cutting and cutting and cutting. We, we cut over a dozen times before he finally surrendered. And if you know how money works when you double the double the double the double, and um, that was fun for me. Another time, the CEO of not a Fortune 500 company, not a Fortune, you know, Fortune 50, probably not Fortune 50. I won't say the name, but he invited me to Martha's Vineyard, and he said, you can join our game under these conditions. We know how tricky you are with those little fingers of yours. So when it's your deal, one of us at the table, we shuffle, the deck is laid on the table, and you have to deal those cards from off the table. And it was he, he was the CEO, and he had a number of his VPs, top VPs in the game. And, and so I had to deal with, the, like I said, cards on the table. And that's one of my favorite methods because it's so deceptive. And all night long, he kept slamming his fist on the table going, there's no way you can be cheating. And the thing is, when he said, if you can do it, go for it, but I know it can't be done, there was two things there. First, he challenged me. <laughs> you know, if you can do it, go for it. Yeah, that's challenged me as uh, what I can do and what I'm known for. And uh, the other is, if I could do it, I had his permission. But he said, go for it if you can do it. And so anyway, um, he, like I said, he kept slamming his face. There's no way you can be cheating. And one of the things I do in my show, 
as a demonstration is I let someone shuffle the cards and then I have them deal out to three or whatever number of players, it doesn't matter, and then deal my cards from anywhere on the deck. When they come around, deal five cards to us, and then I'll spread it out and I'll show that I, 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 when, they, when they shuffled, cut, and dealt, I had four of a kind. I had the winning hand. And so um, to have done it under the conditions he set forth was even easier. But that anyway, that's that's one example. But there's a, a other times, and there was one time a guy pulled a gun on me. He he was from Wyoming. He said, "I've heard about you gamblers here in Texas. You're all a bunch of sissies. I'm from Wyoming. You and I are gonna play a little heads up poker." That's exactly <laughs> how he talked. And he was some Wyoming cowboy. And so he was obviously challenging me. knew obviously knew who I was. And so we sat down, and we're sitting there playing, and we're we. Got some chips from the casino at this particular place. Uh, it was a faux casino, but they, they had gambling there. And um, anyway, I would borrow the chips. And we were just buying it $300 at a time. And within five minutes, I had his $300. Bought it another $300. And within five minutes, I had that. And then finally, you know, he pulled a gun, slapped me across the nose with the barrel twice. So I knew what was, what I, what was going on. Yikes. And then he, he held it under the table and said, keep dealing. And uh, and at that point, I'm going, okay. And now I went out and soon I said, I got to go. And he said, don't you move. And uh, anyway, so then I just made sure everything was clean and pretty. And, uh, and the money just pretty much stayed where it was. Because it was just, at that point, it became pretty much a dead even game. <laughs> and then finally, one of the managers of the place who I knew walked within about four feet of him. And I, I moved over to him. They, you know, the guy wasn't going to do something when someone stand there. I said, the guy's got a gun. And then anyway, security came in and took him. It's, it's unbelievable, man. I mean, I, you know, before this interview, I, I talked to some people about who we were, we were going to have on. I don't think they had heard of you before. And everyone was so <laughs> surprised. I mean, they couldn't believe that, you know, someone that had challenges with their vision could, could overcome such a massive hurdle. And I think that's what's so ins inspiring about your story is that, you know, if you can do this, anyone can do anything. And that's what I take from it. Oh, big time. Exactly. You just got to decide A to C. You know, don't let anything get in your way. Just go whatever your objective or A to Z. Don't let the B, C, D get in your way. Um, focus on it. Determine what you want. See it. Picture, visualize it in your head, and then, then, then don't turn left and t or turn right, and don't anyone, anyone that says, ah, that you can't do it or that can't be done. Just look at that as uh, one of the, one of the uh, fun obstacles to overcome in the process. I think that's what's so inspiring about what you do is that you're showing people that you can really overcome anything that you put your mind to. Yeah, and, and of course, even then, you know, my whole life, you know, I've been a performer for over 40 years, and I've performed over, all over the world. I've been seen on media and different things in over 200 countries. And uh, by, uh, since I did this, some special for China, by over a billion people now. And, um, as, and the thing is, the vision part of it has only been the past 25 years that I mentioned it. Before that, I was a professional performer, and I did not tell people about my vision and when someone else did i would get a little uppity with them because i wanted my work to stand on its own merit i didn't want people to say hey you're pretty good for a blind boy 
mm-hmm. or pretty good for a you know uh, you know disabled whatever. And so I would uh I kind of uh, I just say it had a little chip on my shoulder, and so I would uh shy away when people wanted to say hey, but this makes it more incredible. I go well. So, okay, so it's more incredible. In fact, one of the dads, last incredible first approached me. They wanted me to walk with a white cane. I said, no, I won't do that. And so the first time I turned down the highest, one of the highest rated shows on television, 1981, when they first approached me to be on their show. Then they said they dropped the white cane part of it. And, and, uh, and then so I just did the show. And then, um, but I say that because uh, I don't consider myself disabled. I have I see differently than everybody else. We all, like I said, have our challenges. If it's laziness, if you were assaulted, if you were thrown in prison, or if you uh, had your eyes gouged out, um, you know, we all have something that we have to deal with, and that just makes life more interesting and more fun. We can look at it as a downfall or as a uh, as a as a tragedy, as something negative, or we can look at it as part of the challenge. And I choose to look at all, anything that's put in front of me as part of the challenge. And I've had other challenges outside of the vision. I mean, all my years in the martial arts, man, I, you know, my, my body's old and the parts are wearing out. And I still haven't missed a workout in 47 years. But I've had knee surgery. I've had hernia surgery. I've had three shoulder surgeries. One, one particular fight, I won the match, but I lost the war because it ripped my shoulder apart. And uh, other other things, and so you know, and I just come out of the hospital. I uh, yeah, I get out of the hospital at noon on Friday. I'd be back in the gym against the doctor's orders, and of course now the doctors can't hear this. Um, and I'd be right back in the gym working out the other. Say I uh, had surgery on my shoulder, I'd work out the other three quarters of the body, and I would recover in a fraction of the time. They were always come totally astounded how fast I would be back behind the deck or back fully working out and that's because the same blood that is going through your body you know i'm working out three quarters of the body where that body was in a cast or injured or taped up or whatever they did say the body's blood still going through that area and it somehow accelerated the uh, pro- heating process it flush out the swelling and one time i know i'm getting off on a little a lot of tangents for you sorry about that i i i had uh, my hand, I had, I've had seven hand surgeries. My hands are my living. People say, why are you fighting? Why are you, you're hurting your hands? So I've had seven hand surgeries. After one of them, my hand was as big as my foot. And I went in, my wife, my beautiful wife, Kim and I, we worked out for 150 minutes without you know, taking a breath. That's you know, two hours and two and a half hour workout. Two and a half hour workout. The swelling in my hand went down. I thought it went down 50% from that one workout. And I went back to the therapist. I said, look, and I had just been in there that day. And she, they measure your swelling every time. She goes, it didn't go down 50%. It went down 60% in a 24-hour period. It was just because of the, uh, the, uh, doing what the doctors are afraid to have you do because they're afraid of lawyers. And that's get back in the game. And I'm not encouraging people to go against their doctors. I'm stubborn, and I did that, but I'm not encouraged others to do that. Listen to your doctor, because I don't want to be sued. <laughs> it's been bad advice, uh, but I was not one that listened to doctors. I'll just say that. That was me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's inspiring. I mean, we really have to know when to push forward, right? I mean, it's important to understand our limits and then push a little bit, bit past them. Yes. And then when you start pushing, 
then accelerate it. And I said, people say, oh man, I need to lose uh, weight or something. You know, start off easy. I tell people, okay, just walk three houses down and walk back. Five minutes, do something that is so easy, you can't not do it. As you just walk down the distance of three houses. Then the next day, walk down four houses. Then the next day, jog down the distance of one of the houses, then walk. And then just slowly, and then what happens is you create a habit. And your body becomes addicted to that habit. Your body, the endorphins and the different things that are in our miraculously made brain, you know, start excreting. And that creates a desire to do it. And, uh, and then eventually it almost becomes where you, if you can't, if you're not able to do it, you're going, I'm going to go nuts if I don't have a chance to get in that gym and work out. Or I'm going to go nuts if I don't get that deck of cards back in my hand. Richard, this has been amazing, man. I, I really appreciate it. I know we had been planning this for a couple months now. Where can, where can people find your work? Is there a website that they can go to to order the documentary, to watch the documentary? Oh, yes. Uh, Del- the documentary is called DELT, D-E-A-L-T, as in Delta Hand of Cards. It's an award-winning documentary. It's, been, uh, it's 95 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it's five stars on iTunes. And you can get on any video-on-demand platform, iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Comcast. It's on Hulu. And the international distribution, uh, uh, October, is being released internationally around the world. Um, but you can find it all over. Just Google DeltMovie.com is one of the websites. And my website for when people want to book for speaking engagements or shows, RichardTurner52.com. Richard Turner, my name, how many cards and deck, 52.com. And uh, my personal, and then for bookings, Kim at RichardTurner52.com is I can uh, contact my manager. But those are the main places. But you can find, so watch a lot of stuff on YouTube if you just want to see clips from the film or uh, dozens of other shows and things that I've been on or everything I've described here. You can go online and actually watch it done live in front of uh, people around the world. Perfect. Guys, my guest, his name is Richard Turner. The documentary is called Delt. Go pick it up. It's an amazing watch. We are going to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. You will hear from us next week.